Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Today's guest is a voice that our regular listeners will all be familiar with, as we're joined by our very own SO1 Leadership, Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, who's here to talk about his upcoming book release, The Habit of Excellence, Why British Army Leadership Works. As head of the Centre for Army Leadership, part of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, Colonel Sharp is responsible for championing leadership excellence across the British Army. Having himself graduated from Sandhurst two decades ago, his career in the Parachute Regiment has seen him deployed to Northern Ireland, Macedonia, Afghanistan and Iraq. Among his many varied roles, he's led a counterinsurgency task force operation, commanded a Parachute Regiment battalion and delivered the Ministry of Defence training programme for the London 2012 Olympics for which he was awarded an MBE. Uh, welcome, Colonel, to today's podcast, as you're here to talk about the upcoming book, The Habit of Excellence, Why British Army Leadership Works. What were your early years like before joining the Army, and were you always a leader in your own right? Firstly, thank you very much for um, allowing me to sit on this side of the microphone. Um, slightly more nerve-wracking than sitting where, where you are, but it's an absolute privilege to, uh, to, to be asked to do a podcast. Looking back on my, uh, my upbringing, I, I guess... I would say that I had a privileged upbringing, and I don't mean I don't mean uh, uh, wealth, but I do mean that I feel privileged to have a very have had a very stable home and a very loving home. Mum and dad, who worked tirelessly to give my brother and I the opportunities that that we enjoyed, so I feel uh, very fortunate. And I think my I guess my sort of foundation as a leader, as I were really. The sort of key attributes, I guess, came from my mum and dad. My dad's a contract cleaner, still cleaning now, at the age of 75, about to retire this year. My mum's a um, psychological therapist and, again, still working uh, working hard. And I guess I get my part of my character in terms of my work ethic and my morals and my drive and motivation very much came from, um, from two uh, uh, loving parents. Uh, and my brother, who I always looked up to, he was always in trouble as a kid. Um, he was the naughty one, but I always looked up to him and um, and learned learned a lot from him. And I guess beyond that was my passion for sport and outdoor pursuits as a as a kid growing up. And I, you know, I was a keen swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer. I swam eight times a week. I, I played football, rugby. Um, later on in my teens, I boxed as well. Um, so I had a, a plethora of um, sports I got involved with. And I think for me, I didn't know what leadership was at the time, um, but I think a lot of what sport taught me. And again, gave me the foundations um, for for what I then put into practice later on in life, whether that be you know interpersonal skills, working as a team, team cohesion, identity, fitness, uh, discipline, loyalty. You know, all these attributes uh, come through. I think sport was really big for me. Yeah, those key components that um, Baroness Sue Campbell spoke about on one of our very early podcasts. Uh, yeah. I think it was on episode two actually, uh, and she talked about the power of sports in just. Uh, in building people's lives and, and gaining those experiences. What drew you into the army? What is it that captured your imagination? I mean, we all look at the advert campaigns that we currently see, and, and, and I remember the days of, of what it meant to join the army and those kind of adverts. But what was it that captured your imagination and what drew you into joining, joining the army, and in particular, the parachute regiment? I must say, I fell into it. I remember the, the adverts you were talking about. I think it was Frank at the time when we were growing <laughs> up, skiing down the mountain. This is Frank. Everyone wanted to be him. For me, I kind of fell into it. I was always interested in the military life. I did cadets. I did the university officer training corps at university. But I had no real intention of joining the military. At the end of my first year at university, and I've been on an exercise. And we got typically cold, wet and tired. And I, I, I thought it was thoroughly miserable. 
And I was chatting to the, uh, the, the officer commander, the major that was there at the end of the first year. And he said, um, he said, okay, Langley, hope, hope you've enjoyed your first year. You're going to come back next year for some more. I said, not a chance. I said, I don't understand why people would want to join the army. I don't understand, you know, I don't, I don't enjoy it. I don't see the value in it. And he said, okay, okay. Or well, do me a favor. He said, go on the two week summer camp, the annual camp, and then do two weeks of adventure training after that. And then come back in September and, uh, and we'll have another chat. And if you still don't like it then, then fine, you know, I wish you all the best. And sure enough, he knew what was coming and I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, the camaraderie, um, great social aspect, getting out um, in the outdoors uh, with your friends and everything that we intrinsically understand um, the, the army life and certainly the UOTC before, uh, before I joined gave us, it, it sort of really hooked me in. So I did that for a couple of years, but even at the end of that, I, I had no real intention of joining the military. And a friend of mine, I'd actually uh, tried for a commission in the, what was a territorial army and I failed. They said, I'm not good enough. <laughs> so um, I thought that was it. And then a friend of mine who was also a reservist in the parachute regiment, he said, Langley, you know, go for a regular commission, see, give it a, give it a shot. He said, I think you've got uh, what, what it takes. Oh, and by the way, I've booked you in for a two day look at life with the parachute regiment. <clears throat> and I looked at him, I said, oh, Marcus, I, I don't even want to join the army, let alone the parachute regiment. Um, but lo and behold, I, I went along, had a great time for a couple of days, was really well looked after. And, um, and it kind of rolled on from there. And I managed to pass the, uh, the regular commissioning board and joined Sanders 22 years ago and um, never looked back and have loved it ever since. <laughs> Did a regular's benefit and a reserve's loss. <laughs> um, for those, uh, those of our listeners that don't have a detailed understanding of the Centre for Army Leadership, um, would you mind giving us an overview of what the Centre for Army Leadership, the CAL, is, what its role is, uh, and what we do um, for both the regular and the reserve force um, across, across its network? Sure. So it's a relatively small and young team. It was only set up four years ago in 2017, the aftermath of a, uh, an institutional review um, into leadership that took place in 2015. It was directed by then CGS, now CDS, Chief of Defence Staff, uh, General Siddiq Carter, um, who sought to review how leadership was developing in the army based on our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan, both our successes and our failures. And some of those have been talked, uh, are talked about in the, in the book, but also with an eye on, eye on the future, the change in operating environment, the, cha the change in social context. Um, and he sought a, a root and branch review of uh, leadership in our organization at that sort of key transition point. And um, a number of recommendations that came out of that. Um, one of them was to codify what, uh, the, what leadership meant to the army in the form of our doctrine, which we may well come on to. And, um, and secondly, to form a, a team that does the thinking for the army on leadership and that owns the doctrine, that writes it, owns it, and uses that doctrine as a, as a source to calibrate our thinking, the organization's thinking on leadership, both internally and externally as well. So a lot of what we do is about engaging with, with partners across multiple sectors to share lessons and learn and learn from others. So really, we're a, um, a small team. It's the, the conscience of the army for, for leadership. And only a small team, as I say, seven of us, as you well know, because you're one of them, um, four military, three civil servants. But we also rely on a, a great team of uh, reservists and secondees from across our organization coming to support our, um, our outputs and without whom we, we wouldn't be able to deliver what we do. In the language of today, we very are, we're very much a sort of whole force team. 
yeah, we wouldn't be able to uh, to do that work without the support of our Osakondis and, and our reservists as well. Uh, and they really do provide a different perspective and a bit of uh, diversity of thought to the team uh, in everything that we do. Can I just want to move on now to, to, to the meat and bones of, of kind of the podcast today, which is to talk about the Habit of Excellence and its upcoming release. Um, you've authored the book and you've been leading with this for the past 12 months um, with the support of, of the Cal team. But um, what were the reasons for writing a book and, and why now? Well, the origins of, of where the book came from, it was the brainchild of Professor Lloyd Clark, again, who you know well, part of the team. Um, for our listeners, Lloyd is the Director of Research here at the Cal, a founding member of the, the, the team back in 2017. And he was conducting some research a, a couple of years ago um, to, support our, to support our work. And he couldn't find anywhere a single authoritative source on British Army leadership. There was lots of research and writing done on famous leaders, or the British Army more broadly, or the British Army and its leadership in particular points in time campaigns, for example, but no one single authoritative holistic account. And I guess part of that, the reason for that, is because it was only five years ago that we wrote our doctrine, you know, the first time we'd actually written down and codified the institutional position on, on leadership. So it felt right for us in terms of not only was there, I guess, a gap in the market, um, for, for this book, but also the time it was right because the doctrine had settled and, and, um, and people across the organisation understood it. But w- we had two audiences, I guess. One was an internal audience, so serving personnel to deepen and mature our collective understanding of what leadership meant to us and a sort of a vehicle for discussion and debate. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, it was an offer to wider society, to other organisations, to give a perspective on leadership. And I think you know, the military is often looked to as a, as a reference point for leadership. But I think there's a lot of misperception about what that actually means. And anecdotally, and you will have experienced it, we've spoken about it before, that people tend to think those without any military experience at all have this sort of um, an old-fashioned perspective of the military being very hierarchy, strictly hierarchical, very authoritative, very transactional, people shouting at each other and giving orders. And whilst we are a hierarchical organisation and we have, you know, um, we are a disciplined professional force, leadership is far more to us um, than, than that sort of transactional relationship. And um, so part of the idea behind the book was to, to change perceptions. But it was also, again, a vehicle for us to not only share our lessons based on 360 years of, of experience, but also again, as a vehicle for conversations with others to share from other sectors to share their experiences. And so it was important to us as we, as we wrote the book that whilst we were given our views, that we did infuse that with perspectives from sport, academia, the business world, um, uh, the, the public service et al. And to, to not only, I guess, enhance the credibility of our position, but also to to demonstrate the fundamental nature of leadership and enduring aspects of it, enduring application of it. So, so looking at that, I mean, what is the book about? What are we trying to get down to in the detail with the book? The way the book's structured, as I say, it's a, a, a holistic account of, of British Army leadership. So it starts off with our history, which again, we may well come on to. So where we've come from to get to what leadership means to us today. Um, it, it looks at what makes it distinctive and, and perhaps unique um, in our regimental system, the profession of arms. It then exposes our, our core philosophy. So it unpacks uh, our definition of leadership, which is the character, knowledge, and action that inspires others to succeed. 
So there's a chapter on what leaders are, the character, another on what leaders know, knowledge, and, and what leaders do, action. So it unpacks the sort of core philosophy, the framework, and then it sets that in context with a look at soldier and officer leadership, and then leadership in peace and leadership in, in war. And then finally rounds off with a look to the future, what might change, what evolves, and perhaps what endures through that time as well. Who wants to read it? Who is the audience and, and why should they read it? I guess it goes back to, to the purpose of, of the book and, and the two different audiences. So very much uh, internal. It's, it's for all ranks. It's from our most junior private soldiers and junior NCOs starting off on their leadership journey all the way through to our strategic leaders. Leadership is evolving. It's a constant um, a source of discussion and debate in our organisation. It's so key to us in the way we, the way we operate that I think it's, uh, that it's, in, it's an important vehicle for those discussions. But as I say, the, the external audience um, is, is where we would like it to, to reach out to because whilst we don't have all the answers, whilst we're not perfect with an organisation, the book doesn't claim to be, um, we, we do have a breadth of experience and exposure to, 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 to lean on and again, offer, offer um, uh, lessons for others. But what's important is, and I think I've already said that, it's about that, it's about that two-way conversation that hopefully over time it generates so that we can understand how others lead, albeit in different contexts. And hence that, that, that breadth of perspective from those different sectors was really important to us. So it's self-reflection as well, taking a, taking a look at ourselves and kind of determining how we can improve and where we can improve. Absolutely. And there's lessons for everyone. It's not just aimed at you know, senior generals or, or um, professors or C-suite executives. It's for interns. It's for people starting off on their leadership journey, you know, uh, team leaders, um, uh, people new to the faith communities, for example, the whole spectrum of society that could that, that, that could learn from this. We've all got we've all got lessons to learn. Yeah, and, and that's that. Yeah, and that's probably the biggest point actually is that we can always improve our leadership somewhere. There's always an angle in which we can we can get after looking after our people better, and then we can start to make changes. And we make small changes lead to bigger changes. I think over time, always learning. I mean, the army is a, is a pretty unique organization just through its history, the number of years it's, it, you know, we've been operating as, as, as an army um, in the service of the country, our unique traditions, battalion systems and everything else that goes with it. And our kind of unique kind of lexicon of language that that's kind of uh, the outside world can tend to struggle with, including our, our partners and, and, and families as well at the same time. Is army leadership unique and why is leadership so important to the army of today? It is, it is definitely unique to a certain degree, um, although, as I say, the, the fundamentals, particularly of, of leadership, the fundamentals will endure across all sectors of society. But yes, there are elements that make it unique um, and not all understood in the army, as conversations you and I have had about uh, various regimental traditions um, and heritage and history uh, uh, prove. But I think we're much richer for it. Um, in terms of its uniqueness, then, and, and again, this is explored in the book, probably worth breaking down into, into a couple of layers. Firstly, the uniqueness of the profession of arms. When you look at our core output, our raison d'etre, if you like, is to fight the nation's enemies, it's, 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 to, it's to go to war. And in the final, final ultimatum, we exist um, to collectively, collectively engage in offensive action. And... We all therefore have a responsibility involving combat, mortal danger, and the application of lethal force. Now that is in the extreme, but ultimately that's what we're here to, to deliver. And with that comes the, what we call the contract of unlimited liability, which is the legal right and the duty to, in the extreme, take life or indeed give your own. 
So that element there makes it somewhat unique, but that you could argue is, is reflected across the military community. The land environment in which the army specializes is combat on, the, on land is different to that of our um, partners in the Air Force and the Navy. Whilst leadership is, of course, intrinsic to the way they do business as well, and they are people organizations, uh, combat for them is in, 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 intrinsically about its platform based and at reach. Whereas for the army, it's, it's a, a fundamentally a human endeavor. You're face to face, eyeball to eyeball in some instances uh, with, with your opponents. And it's a contest of wills in that environment. And all warfare ultimately is a contest of, of, of wills. And it's, if you like, combat at its most personal. And that's why leadership is so important to us. It goes back to that, that core purpose, you know, fighting the crucible of combat. And the fear and the confusion and the, and the chaos of war and the ability to motivate men and women to keep going as I think CGS said on our first um, podcast when he described it as every sinew and fiber of your body is telling you to do otherwise and you've got to keep people moving forward, motivating people to keep moving forward to achieve the mission. And, and it's about that, that moral component, about that fighting spirit and that will to win, that will to succeed when all the odds are against you. And that's why leadership is so important. But also, because ultimately, as I say, it's about the application of controlled, focused, lethal force. It's ensuring that that application is done within legal and ethical boundaries. And so all that takes leadership. But of course, the key aspect is that you can't turn that on on the day. You can't just turn up on the battlefield and have that team cohesion, that clear purpose, that unity, that trust, those, that clear understanding of moral boundaries. For people to act in those extreme um, circumstances and to act appropriately and to win, uh, it takes leadership that is nurtured and matured in the days, the weeks, the months, the years, and the decades that come before that. And that's why for us, leadership is in the everyday and, and hence the, the title of the book, the habit of excellence. It needs to be habitual. It needs to be instinctive. And that's why we demand leadership, good leadership of our people of all ranks every single day on and off the field of battle, on and off the, 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 the field of play, on duty, off duty. Um, it's, it's built in peace. It's built out of crises to enact it effectively um, on operations. Is there a British army leadership style? Is there something unique about our own style of leadership that, that separates us from our partner nations, such as the US? I mean, we, we, we had um, Sergeant Major of the Army Grinston talking about kind of the US NCO Academy and the way that they train and educate their leaders and, uh, and through West Point, etc. What's uniquely British? I mean, you hear the quotes and, and stories from US soldiers talking about, you know, making a brew in a, in a trench or in the middle of a firefight, etc. And that kind of humor that we have um, on, the, on the battlefields. Do you see that? And is that a unique aspect to our leadership and the way we operate as, a, as, a, as an army? Yes. And um, I, I, I put it down to two things that make us unique. But arguably, you look at any organization, any team, anywhere, any military or non-military organization, everyone is unique to a certain extent. They've all got their own background, cultures, traditions, etc. I think the two aspects that really shine through for me and for my experience, one is our regimental tradition and the regimental system. And we were speaking shortly before this podcast uh, and you and I have had many conversations about our regimental system, not least because you're from the Household Cavalry Regiment um, and you know, your history dates back to 
our very founding years as an army. And that, that richness um, down to how many buttons on your tunic or you know, whether you wear a hackle or not or which way your stable belt goes, you know, all those intrinsic details um, that, that, that mean something to, to you and your regiment. Um, and everything that's gone from those early years all the way through to now is ingrained in the way uh, you operate as a, as a regiment and what it means to you and gives you your identity. I'm in the parachute regiment, so our history is a lot younger in the founding uh, years of World War II. But we've got a short but a rich history in, the, in that time which we lean on. That culture, that rich tapestry, that mosaic of cultures and sub-subcultures um, that I think many armies actually, whilst a number of armies have regiments and corps and cap badges like we do, very few have the depth and the historical richness that we lean on. And I think some look at it on, um, in envy and, 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 uh, because it is so powerful. And, and it's great listening to, you mentioned the podcast between the Army Sergeant Major and Sergeant Major of the Army in America. Uh, and you could see how closely they were aligned in their, in their thinking and the core fundamentals of what they were talking about were really well aligned. And that matters on the battlefield. It matters when we operate together great partnerships have forged that common understanding, the ability to operate, but we are different. We are unique. And General uh, Stan McChrystal, who kindly um, endorsed the book for us, he, he said, you know, it captures that uniqueness of the British Army uh, quite well in the book. But that source of that culture means so much to us as an organization as it does to many. If you think of a culture as the personality of an organization, it's the way we do things around here. It's, it's often the unseen. It's, 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 in our, it's part of our identity. It's part of our ethos. And that absolutely plays into some of the things I was talking about earlier on that, that actually make the, the difference between winning and losing on the battlefield. You know, that fighting spirit, that will to carry on. Yeah. And there's a couple of examples that we draw on in the book. One, a personal example I always look to is Lance Corporal Josh Leakey, who won the Victoria Cross um, when, he was, when we were working together in um, Afghanistan in 2013. And, um, and when you ask him, you know, what made you do what you, you did that day? And he said, one, I didn't want to let my mates down. And two, I didn't want to let the reg down. He pointed to his cap badge and he said, I did it for that. And, and what he was referring to there, he was looking back and, um, on the four, our forebears that have gone before us, the example that they've set for us. And he didn't want to let that, that down, that, that tradition down. Um, and every regiment has got that example. Another one is drawn out in the book is, um, the Gloucesters at Imjin River in Korea, 1951. 850 soldiers stood on the start line on that hill, surrounded by tens of thousands of, of, of Chinese fighters. And they were surrounded and they kept on fighting. And at the end, 169 of them were left on the battlefield, but the rest were either dead, wounded or, or taken prisoner and driven into captivity. And what kept them fighting? It was that pride in being a Gloucester, you know, back against the wall and they kept on fighting. And as I say, every regiment has... Has, has got this uh, deep sense of um, loyalty, this, this sense of custodianship to, to those that have gone before. Um, and it's part of our identity. So it's, it's, um, culture is extremely powerful and has a close link with uh, leadership. And I think, again, there's lessons for, for all organisations in, in that. A powerful tool. Um, our culture and our battalion systems that we can, we can use and, and, and lean on very heavily, particularly in, in times of kind of austere conditions or, or, or when we find ourselves slightly lost we can always look back to uh, what's gone before and, really and lean is. on that experience yeah it really is uh, the cal has also recently released uh, a new version of the army leadership doctrine version two and uh, does this book reflect that publication 
Uh, and what are the key similarities between the book and, and the new army leadership doctrine? Um, it does. And you know the doctrine probably better than I because you've been <laughs> intrinsic to, uh, to making it happen. And thank you for your, your hard work and indeed the team. There's been a lot of work gone into the last year. So the doctrine is circa 80 pages of an A5 text of our, of our philosophy. So a codification of, of the army's position on leadership. Um, it's simple without being simplified. It is accessible to, to all ranks. And it's a framework for thinking, as all doctrine is. It's not dogma. It doesn't tell people what to think or, how, or, or, or what to do. But it gives a framework for, for, for thinking. So that's our doctrine. And of course, for us to invest in the, the, the research, the thinking and the lessons and, uh, and the understanding of, uh, uh, that, that went into refreshing that version, um, a lot of that was directly applicable to the book. As I've described, an element of the book, four central chapters of what mo modern British army leadership is, what leaders are, what leaders know, and what leaders do, is, is very much based on the doctrine and the framework there. But what the book does is, is then provides the, the richness of the context that sits underneath that. Um, so if, if you like, it brings, it brings our doctrine to life and puts it into context. Um, you, you talk about the history of leadership within the army. Um, can you tell us about that? How has it evolved? How has it grown? How has it matured? What lessons have we learned, you know, through trial and error? And what changes have you seen throughout your career? Because, you know, we've been roughly in about 20 odd years between us each. And uh, I've seen plenty of changes through, through my unit and, and working with other units. But and I'm sure you've seen similar changes and, and, and similarities throughout your career as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk about the history first, because the, the chapter one of the book does exactly that. It sets out the, the history of British Army leadership and its evolution. And we think it's the first time that that, that has been uh, written and described and researched in its entirety. And really what we'd seen there was the first couple of centuries, so from our origins in circa 1660 through to around the middle of the 19th century, uh, leadership was very much about officers, and officers is very much about the aristocracy and the landed gentry, those of wealth who purchase their commissions, whether it be their ensign uh, sea or the cornet sea, the, their first commission into the infantry or the cavalry respectively. So you had to have money to be an officer in the army in those days, um, clearly a reflection of a very class-based society, very hierarchical society. And the leadership style, I guess, would be typified by the great man theory, you know, the heroic figure, um, it was about honour, courage, and discipline, uh, personified probably by uh, one of our most famous leaders, Wellington, who who was a, a fan of corporal punishment, and he felt that the uh, the the the, that, uh, the soldier class needed to be um, disciplined by through through uh, effective corporate punishment. And uh, at the end of the birch, that was again, I guess, reflective of that class-based society at the time. And then in the late nineteenth centuries, there. It was a, a significant period of change in society, the, the industrial age, changes in the socio-economic environments, which reflected the demands placed on the, uh, uh, on the army. There were changes in civil professions, a greater professionalization of, um, for example, uh, medicine and law, uh, a, a more paternal instinct uh, in society within the, within the other professions as well. And there were some significant failures at the end of, or sort of the mid 19th century, the Crimea and war, and the turn into the, the 20th century with the second Anglo-Boer war. And these, both those particular, those campaigns um, drew harsh criticism on the army and were vehicles for, for change. 
So a greater emphasis on professionalization. They got rid of the, the purchase system, the purchase commission in the, uh, in the late uh, 1800s. Staff College, the building we're sat in now, was, was uh, built and formed in 1858 um, with, as a vehicle for um, educating those uh, members of, of the staff. They introduced exams to, for people to join the service, to join as a, an officer into the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and uh, annual reports for officers up to Lieutenant Colonel. So had to sort of earn your promotion. Um, and, and there's some sort of significant changes in the early 20th century, the way the army was formed. Uh, so the, the way the army is constructed, uh, structured a territorial force and an expeditionary force. So lots of change going on, lots of uh, reforms across, across the force. And then you had the, um, the you had, uh, World War I and World War II, which manifested significant changes, not just in the army, but elsewhere. But you, in bo both instances, you had a force that started off in the hundreds of thousands that rapidly had to expand to millions of uh, soldiers and officers. And the demand on leaders and leadership, uh, of course, couldn't be matched by the traditional routes and the traditional recruiting ground that went before that. And so you saw a lot more people coming into positions of, of, of command and leadership from, uh, from trade professions, uh, but also commissions from the ranks as well, which was unseen before, before the wars. And then, um, and again, sort of increased professionalization as a result of both those. And then since uh, 1945, up until really the present day, we really saw a lot of um, small wars and irregular wars. Of course, we had the more conventional conflicts such as uh, Korea and the Gulf War. But these, these small irregular wars in, um, in, in Aden, in, in Malaya, in Northern Ireland, really saw a period of um, decentralization whereby um, power and authority and leadership was increasingly devolved down through the ranks. You know, um, the uh, uh, banner that Northern Ireland was seen as a section commander's war, for example. Yeah. And then there's also a period of professionalization and whereby in the 1980s under Field Marshal Bagnall, um, our doctrine was introduced. And we were following examples from the German army and the American army to introduce doctrine. So codified, the army started codified how it fought, how it operated, how it trained and how it, how it prepared itself. And part of that was mission command, our command philosophy, which came in in the 80s. And that was about uh, centralized intent and decentralized execution, as you would uh, well know. Albeit the origins of that were written in the early 1900s, but they didn't really come into core thinking until the 1980s. So you see this gradual journey over the centuries, but increasing that pace um, towards the modern day of devolved power leadership across the organization, across the ranks, and um, access access fall into into leadership positions as well as this uh, consistent journey of professionalization and then we come into the last uh, 20 years and i guess that gets to your question of the changes that you and i will have seen and one of the first things is a significant professionalization we've got a doctrine so we've got a central position as i say this is a, a, a common understanding and that's where i guess we're now looking at an not an emerging but a an, an enhanced army culture where people see themselves increasingly as part of the whole army, but still that's applied and enacted every day through our regimental, uh, through our regimental identities. Yeah. Um, but I think also uh, certainly in our time, leadership is seen as the preserve of everyone. A lot more focus on our private soldiers, our junior NCOs and our senior NCOs and the pivotal roles they play in, in leadership. 
And I guess the last thing I'd say is an increased focus on the individual. And we may well come on to that and where the army's going, where we're going with the leadership. But um, historically, been very focused on the task, very good at team cohesion. And I think now we are, we are rounding off that trilogy of task team indiv individual that we know so well from our doctrine and really focusing in of individual leaders. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's probably one of the biggest points actually in the last 20 years that I've seen is, is we look at it slightly more holistically where we, we look after the individuals, which then leads into looking after the team and the task, et cetera. And then, and we're building on those principles as, and we're, give, we're giving people a lot more responsibility. Our junior commanders are, are responsible for a hell of a lot more nowadays than they, than they were 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. So, and they rise to the challenge every single time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and our new generation of soldiers that are coming through are proving just as worthy and, and just as, you know, just as with a fighting spirit as, as we'd expect from any soldier across, across the across the history of uh, the British Army. Absolutely. And so one thing, I'd just come back on that, because you asked about the uniqueness earlier on, and I didn't get onto that. She just reminded me. And so one is the regimental system, and two is the British soldier. And uh, I, I can't beat CGS. Again, I think it was in our first podcast when he described, he was asked a pretty similar question. And he said, ultimately, it's the British soldier that makes it unique. And, and, and no matter how society has changed over the years, you know, the... The, 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 I guess the raw product, if you like, if you can put it that way, of, of what makes a, the British Army soldier. Also, society has changed and where we, you know, where we recruit people from. I think the Army is represented by people from 47 countries around the world now. But just that, the, the British Army soldier, the, 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 the courage, the resilience, the fortitude, the sort of the challenge in nature and the humour, the banter, the crack, as CGS says, you know, that, that is... That is somewhat unique and enduring. That Tommy Atkins fighting spirit is, <laughs> and, and 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 I say this, you know, hand on heart, that you know, the, over the last twenty-two years, the reason I, I get up in the morning, and want to go to work, genuinely, is is to work alongside our soldiers because they're, they're they're brilliant, they're world class, and um, and they they bring challenges every day, they bring smiles on your face, they bring humour every day. But they, as I said just now, they, they deliver above and beyond. Yeah, inspirational. Uh, leading on from that, Colonel, the habit of excellence is quite a bold title. Uh, noting the book refers to failures in leadership and flawed leaders, uh, and it has drawn some criticism before, uh, before its release. Um, are we really excellent? It's a fair challenge and a very fair question. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's got some criticism before people have read it, but that's uh, the nature of the world we're in. Um, so... I think that we've got a lot to be proud of in the army. Um, the book is deliberately positive in tone, um, deliberately so, but it's also honest. It talks about some of our failings, whether it be Baha Musa, the, the deep cut uh, tragedies in the late 90s and early 2000s, some of our significant operational failings, which I've already mentioned that led to notable changes. So it doesn't shy away from being honest to say we're not perfect. We don't always get it right at the individual and collective uh, level, but, but no organization does. I mean, that's the stark reality. You know, we're an organization of over 100,000 strong. We recruit from the society whom we serve and for all the shortcomings and flaws that exist in wider society, um, inevitably they are reflected in, in our organizations. They would be elsewhere. That's not an excuse. That's just a reality. And I think the important thing is we continue to evolve our leadership to close the gap between, to close the gap on the, or the space that allows those, those, those failures and those mistakes uh, to happen. So we, we're not perfect, but I do think we've got something to be proud of. I look at some of the very recent examples that, that, that are alive in people's memories now. You know, our soldiers 
are men and women that stood on the front gate of Hamid Karzai International Airport only a matter of weeks ago, you know, operating in those extremely volatile uh, conditions, you know, thrown into, into that environment in a matter of hours and days. They stood on the front gate when they are faced with um, hundreds or thousands of people desperate for their lives to flee, babies dying in, in people's arms, pregnant women collapsing in front of them, and people desperate and fearing for their life. With, a, with a, 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 the Taliban, who were our former enemy, um, and um, only a few years ago, standing a matter of 20, 30 uh, meters away uh, in, in a very volatile security situation, as, as sadly through that suicide bombing proved to be the case. And yet our, our, our men and women that stood there dealing with that situation, I think, showed tremendous compassion, emotional intelligence, uh, professionalism to deal with the situation that they were in. And again, I'm going to hark back to why it's called the habit of excellence, that sort of um, ability, that capability um, is not born on the day that, that comes of, of work that's put in uh, long before then. And I can cite other examples as well. The army support to the NHS for COVID-19, our floods, the Olympics in 2012, stand on the front gate providing venue security, uh, supporting our partners and allies in Eastern Europe, or uh, Will Meddins and, his, and his, his battalion in Mali um, under the UN now, and many other examples. So I think we have got a lot to be proud of in the British Army, but, but we're not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. And I think it's, what it's important to us is we continue to be open to criticism and we can continue to be honest about our flaws and our failings and we own up to them. And as much as those flaws and failings are a result ultimately of poor leadership, I also firmly believe and know and seen the evidence of changes to, 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 to those and, and rectifying those failures the constant evolution of the army coming through good leadership. And you look at, and you, 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 you've seen as much as I have in the last 18 months or so, you look at our diversity and inclusion, the narrative and the, the conversation around diversity and inclusion in the army, it's fundamentally changed in the last 18 months since the tragic uh, death of George Floyd in, in May of last year. Many organizations are going through similar conversations and similar uh, heightened awareness of, of of their own perspectives. Um, but the amount of work that, and investment that's, that's got into to this, um, you know, how alive our networks are, our BAME networks, our faith networks, LGBTQ and, and others, they've just, they've come alive. The training and education pathway, um, how much greater investment there is on, on raising people, people's awareness. And some of the work that you've set up here at the Centre of Army Leadership when we were supporting the career courses, young junior NCOs coming and talking about their experience of being bullied or harassed or sexually assaulted or being a member of the uh, BAME community. And, and these living libraries, as, as, as we know them, you know, raising you know, really important awareness across the chain of command. And that takes leadership. It takes leadership from our senior leaders, investing in it, providing the direction, providing the resources. That's leadership in people like Rachel Emerson and Belissa Green in the Army headquarters who are driving the policy and, and, and driving these initiatives forward. But ultimately, it's also... It's our chain of command, it's our junior NCOs and senior NCOs and young officers that are standing up with a voice, and having the confidence to, to, to tell their story and, uh, and, and make us aware. And that's what's going to drive change. So um, we're not perfect, uh, but I think we've got a, a good story to tell and, um, and we're constantly learning. I think that's the key, the key factor from, from that, Colonel, is, is that we're, we're learning from our mistakes and we're trying to, to take as much information away from those mistakes as possible and, and trying to... Uh, put those measures in place that kind of try and help to prevent those from happening again. 
Um, but we're also encouraging debate, discussion, and encouraging understanding, trying yeah. to trying to dive into the, into a, a problem and not just deal with a surface problem, but try and actually get down to the root cause of issues and what those problems are and see how we can progress and move forward. But bringing in those soldiers and officers that can help us make the right decisions instead of just relying on, on, on what one individual thinks, et cetera, and, and providing that understanding and diversity to ensure that we, you know, we, we, we can do the best for our soldiers as we move forward uh, in society. Uh, society changes as well. We need to change with it. And as you said earlier, we are a reflection of society and we need yeah. to, we need to move with the times and move with our, you know, our next generation as they, as they come into command, et cetera. And I think a lot of it is about, and other organisations will be going through the same issues. A lot of these are unconscious biases. Um, and a, a lot of the sort of day-to-day failings, if you like, day-to-day mistakes, they're not conscious, they're not deliberate. Of course, people fail, and some of those are high profile, and they need to be held to account. But it also, it's, it's the unconscious biases that we don't necessarily know exist or don't recognise. And that's why this awareness you rightly identify is so important, because it makes us more self-aware. We can only improve then as an organisation for the better. You discuss the difference between soldier and officer leadership in the book. And to those who have experienced service in the armed forces, this relationship is intuitive. But to those not from a military background and this structure, a delineation between two different cohorts might appear odd. Why do we have soldiers and officers and how does leadership differ between them and their roles and responsibilities? That's a good question. And as you say, it's something that's so intuitive to us that we often don't give it much thought. It's the way things are done around here. Uh, and, and obviously reflected not just in the British Army, but in military armies across the world. So actually writing this book was and researching it was really uh, an interesting process to, to, to actually get to, to the nub of some of this. And, and it's still actually quite difficult to explain it. But I think ultimately it, it boils down to role and purpose. And, and whilst they are two distinctive cohorts, the soldier cohort and the officer cohort, their roles, responsibilities uh, overlap significantly, as, as, as you know, as much as I. But I guess it's about role and purpose, first and foremost. And officers, through their commission, are entrusted with command authority and the responsibility and the accountability that goes with that. And ultimately, it's about directing, as I say, going back to our raison d'etre, it's about the um, directing the application of lethal force and being responsible and accountable for that. Um, and largely that, that sits within the domain of officers in, in command. Soldiers and our NCO leaders, they, the, the heart and muscle of the organisation, are intrinsic to delivering effect and, and really are responsible for much of the day-to-day face-to-face management and leadership that enables the commander's intent to be put into action. And in really simple terms, I guess, and the reality is obviously far more complex, uh, we shall know, but, but if you think that officers... Uh, would look up and out to understand the context, to understand the and, and shape the intent and direction within that context and provide direction uh, uh, down and in. Uh, soldier leaders then interpret that direction and then and interpret that intent and put it into meaningful action. Now, of course, soldiers uh, and NCOs also look up and, and officers you know, have a focus on delivering action and looking down themselves. But that's one way of sort of um, simplifying it, I guess. But it really is a symbiotic relationship. And, and when it works in uni- unison, it's extremely powerful, as you know. Mm. And it's an interesting interplay, as we've discussed many times, about leadership and followership, and both being roles, not positions. So the classic one is, is a, a young platoon commander. So uh, a young second lieutenant turning up to her troop, 
of, of, of 30 men and women. She's fresh out of Sanders. She's got her professional training. She understands what commander leadership is all about, but no real experience, certainly not much professional experience. So she'll be relying very much on her platoon sergeant or troop sergeant, who's got a lot more experience, who's been in the army perhaps 15 years, a lot more professional knowledge. But ultimately, she, and indeed our corporals that, that sit underneath them in the hierarchy, the corporals with, again, a lot, huge amount of experience between them. But the second lieutenant is still in command. She still holds that responsibility. She's still held to account for, for the actions of, of, of her troop. So, so in the first number of months, and with, as, as, as young officers, we've, we've all been through this, you know, we're relying, we're following our sergeants and our, and our corporals. And really, we're relying on them to be loyal to us in the first instance, give us the breathing space to recognize that we are in command, we own the responsibility, but we're leaning on them for their experience and their guidance. Um, so that, that initial relationship is absolutely critical. And then there obviously comes a, a point at where the confidence um, and the professional understanding of the, of the officer then increases and that sort of leader-follower relationship sort of translates the other way. But I'd also say, again, throughout our careers, we're constantly in flow of lead, leadership and followership. And, and it doesn't mean that you're following those senior to you and you're leading those junior to you. I frequently, if, if not more so, I've been led by people junior to me throughout my career. You know, young men and women with the technical expertise or the experience that is far superior to me because they live in a certain, you know, live in a certain trade or skill set or expertise every single day. So I rely on them. And in some ways, I, 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 they, they're leading me in terms of their technical knowledge and understanding, their trade understanding. Um, whereas I'm still in command, so I'm, I'm providing leadership in a different way. So you know, that, that, that's... Um, a relationship between lead and follow ebbs, ebbs and flows. Um, so to us, I guess it's intuitive and instinctive. But as I say, when, you, when, it's, when it's working in unison, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I still think, and, and I, know, I know I've spoken to you plenty of times, Colonel, but that uh, platoon troop commander and platoon troop sergeant relationship, I believe, is probably one of the most crucial, crucial factors in the army at the minute. And it kind yeah. of, you know, that helped that bond and that breeding ground of kind of learning and understanding for that young young commander is crucial to the rest of their career and in some cases I think can make or break whether they determine whether they have a long career in the army or or, or punch out quite early on. I've, I've, I've seen people that have had tough experiences in their early early years with their platoon sergeants when that relationship hasn't got, gone quite right um, and they've struggled after that confidence and yeah. Uh, knowledge and ability you're absolutely right but it's also i think it's whilst it's a foundations for officers and their future careers but also for senior ncos you know the mentorship that the experience of mentorship so really it's also for um our, our sergeants it's key for their ongoing professional development as they as they grow through the ranks because that that experience of mentorship mentoring young uh, platoon commanders it's absolutely critical part of their own development as, as well and that translates as they move through the rank structures you know when i was an oc a company commander you know i relied on my uh, my company sergeant major when i was a commanding officer i relied on the experience of my rsm so that that partnership is yeah. you know works all the way through the ranks and it's probably something actually that the british army now recognized since 2015 when we introduced the command sergeant major role um, with the Army Sergeant Major and the various other Command Sergeant Majors across the network, so at Home Command, Field Army, etc. Because of previously, we never had that kind of soldier enlisted voice to to those senior commanders, and now we have that. We we, we kind of have a, a slightly more flat and fast network, particularly at the at the W O one level, the Warrant Officer Class One level, 
um, where we can get stuff done, but we can also view and voice our opinions to those to those individuals, and and, and they will there be our representative essentially in a room and in those meetings where those big decisions are made and and kind of put a, almost a reality stamp on some of the decisions. It's really um, important, isn't it? Because it's very easy to give direction. You sometimes lose context, isn't it? And, and, and the further you go up the organisation, you know, the, the more knowledge you have, but in, in some ways, the less the less you have because, you know, the society and the army in our instance is, is, is changing around you. And so it's really important that you, as you say, you've got that, uh, the voice of the voice of our soldiers and our junior leaders uh, to be represented, absolutely. Um, could I, what are some of the current challenges the army is facing uh, with its leadership and, and what is being done about it to get after those failures? The first thing to say is the, the army, again, like any organisation, is, is in constant evolution. I think some of the current issues we are grappling with, I would say um, the mission command mindset, we do it very well on operation. And by that, for those that don't understand, of our listeners that don't understand necessarily uh, the mission command, it really it's about telling people what to do and, and why to do it, but not how, and empowering people to, to deliver upon your intent and unleashing the, the, um, the talent, the experience, um, and the skill set of your, of your workforce to deliver on the intent within the boundaries you, you set. And it's really powerful. And I think we do that really well on operations. We don't translate that very well back in barracks. And I fear we, we rely on our hierarchy too much at times and, um, and policy and, and it gets in the way. And that there, are, there are good reasons why it's harder to enact mission command in, in barracks, you know, multiple focus, um, workforce, transient workforce, policies, risk appetite is different. There's lots of good reasons, resources, et cetera. But, but, but I do think it is a mindset and I think there's more we need to do to inculcate mission command mindset in, uh, in peacetime and barracks on training as well. Uh, toxic leadership keeps coming up. We're a hierarchical organization. Some, some people still confuse command with leadership. Command people will do what you um, tell them to do because you're in a position of authority. Leadership, they'll do what you ask them to do because they want to do it. And, um, and I think we need to continue and hence the importance of um, developing individual leaders and, 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 and self-awareness too to really get to grips with those who, who show negative or, or toxic leadership traits. I also think we need to do more to unleash the cognitive diversity in the army. Um, we've already spoken about the, the wider effort that the army is going to, to promote both diversity and inclusion, but really it's about leveraging cognitive diversity. And some of that is born out of demographic diversity, of course, the diversity of the workforce. I think uh, Matthew Sy's book, Rebel Ideas, is a, is a fantastic um, articulation of this, uh, how high performance is driven by having unleashing that, the, the power of cognitive diversity. And, um, and I think that will be a continued challenge in a hierarchical organisation, um, but it takes confident, self-assured and humble leaders to be able to, to, to enable all our people to, to have a voice and, and, and offer their opinion. That doesn't stop the fact that when decisions are made, everyone falls in behind that decision and deliver, delivers according to the intent and the direction given. But up until that point, we really need to unleash, uh, unleash that cognitive diversity that exists within our organisation and we need more of it. So there are a number of, number of challenges, I think. There, there will be others that people will be able to cite. What are we doing about it? Lots of initiatives across the army to do with army organisational culture, to the way a program castle, the way we're um, managing and promoting our talent. Uh, but for us in the centre of army leadership, again, you'll know well, Ms. Nickel, is uh, Project Bramall, which um, the executive committee of the army endorsed a couple of months ago, which is a 10-year project to look at leader as opposed to leadership development, which again is really focusing on the individual needs 
of, of our people for the collective benefit. And I think, I think there's a, an element by, whereby up until now, we've, we've got this strong central position of leadership and that's what's taught and educated. And by default, therefore, we develop our, our leaders and good leaders. But I think there's more we can do in what, we, what we've termed the next stage of professionalization of British Army leadership is to focus more on the individual. Um, because ultimately, as Slim said, you know, leadership is just playing you. And we're all different. We've all got our own backgrounds, biases, personalities, strengths and weaknesses that we bring to bear. And I think if we can make our leaders better self-aware, and I think if we can set out what is required more, um, if you like, scientifically, um, identify what's required of our leaders at different levels of uh, different roles and different levels of responsibility throughout the army and manage that talent and develop them according to their individual needs better holistically through life, then, um, then I think we're in, we will not only do right by our people, but we will enhance our collective capability. We'd be better for it on the battlefield. Be a much stronger, more agile organisation. Absolutely. And looking to the future, what, what do you see as our future challenges in the army? And, and do the requirements for leadership excellent endure uh, rather than change? Uh, good question. There's a chapter at the end of the book on uh, future leadership. I think there's lessons for everyone here, not just in the army, because I think a lot of what is discussed there will resonate elsewhere. And there's always a danger when you're talking about the future of being too specific because it would be irrelevant in, in one year or 10 years time when um, inevitably as the future always is, it never works out as you, as you predict. But I think there are certain trends and certainly the pace of change and the, the complexity of the environment in which we are operating, all of us in, in wider society, I think is going to be increasingly challenging for our leaders. And one key role for any leader is to be able to translate the context in which you're operating in to make clear decisions, to manage risk, to, to provide clear direction and to, to look after your people and manage and lead your people all depends on the context and the environment in which you're operating in. So I, I think, you know, that contextual understanding is really, and translation is really important for, important for leaders and the pace and complexity of, of that change is going to put increasing demands on our people. So we're going to need brighter leaders who are willing to learn and willing to adapt. And I think also leaders who are willing and able to lead through change because you know yourself that change brings about fear and resentment and in some cases, the worst case, uh, polarization and resistance. And we need to lead people through that. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges for any leader is, is looking back and as we described, as described in the book, it's about what, what endures, what evolves and what changes. What do you draw from some of the, the elements we were talking about earlier on in the podcast from your, from our history, our traditions, our, our rich regimental um, uh, system, for example, um, the way we've always done things, is that still relevant? Do we draw on that strength or do we need to change because society changed and different demands are changing of individuals? So I think there's a lot in, in that. There's generational change, um, which is probably a podcast in itself, but multi-generational leadership, I think will be challenging for everyone. We've always got to be careful about making generalizations about whole generations because ultimately we're all individuals, but there are clearly trends. But I think certainly, as you've already alluded to, the young men and women coming into the army, um, they've got a huge amount to offer. So I'm quite encouraged about the generations coming through now. I think there's certain elements. There's lots more we could talk about. Followership, uh, the relationship with, for us, command leadership and management, how that manifests. I think for everyone, two aspects will endure. One is purpose, having a clear purpose, understanding what you want to achieve 
selection and maintenance of the aim and keep driving towards that because it's purpose that brings people together, binds people and, 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 um, and ultimately is, is a vehicle for success. And the second is, in fact, two more. One is people, no matter what business you're in, to a greater or less extent, you're in the people business. So it's about knowing your people, looking after your people, including yourself, putting them first. And the last point I'd say is the importance of values. And you know, um, just as much in our, as I, how much emphasis the army puts on our values and standards. It's our, it's our moral boundaries, if you like. If you want to be part of the gang, if you want to be in part of our organization, be who you are, bring your strengths to the party, but operate within these boundaries, which is our values and standards. And it's about, I, I think, having those boundaries, having those moral boundaries is important for any organization. And as, as the society changes around us, as we face change, as we face complexity, as we face new technology, uh, new generations coming in with different uh, expectations and, and, and demands, all that, if you've got strong, if you've got a strong uh, moral boundaries, you've got strong values of your organization and you adhere and you ensure that people adhere to them, give them the freedoms within that, then we're in a good place both in terms of our organisations and wider society. Colonel, uh, I think that's uh, probably a good place to stop and, uh, and uh, move on. Uh, it's been great to chat to you, um, uh, to talk about the book and, and listen to your thoughts. This is always interesting uh, from, from you to, to listen to your perspectives, uh, as we have done over the past 18 months or so. But as you know, having previously sat in this chair numerous times that we can't let you go without first um, uh, swinging through the quickfire question rounds, It'll be interesting to see your answers as you've had uh, <laughs> plenty on the receiving end uh, from previous podcasts. So to start us off, uh, best leader that you've ever known or worked with and why? I actually think these questions are the hardest, the hardest of all. Every time I ask them, I always, always wonder, well, what do I'd actually say to this? <laughs> um, and here I am. Best leader, really, really difficult. Um, I would go outside the army. I would pitch for Brendan Ingle, who was my boxing coach in... Uh, in, the, in my late teens, early 20s, Winko Bank uh, Gym in Sheffield. He paid as much care and attention to uh, school kids of eight years old than he did to, to, to world champions he, he was training. Um, he taught them not just boxing, but life skills. He gave them purpose. He gave them discipline. And, uh, and he, he literally changed people's lives. So I'd say Brendan Ingle. In the, in the military, really difficult question. I'm not going to... I've got a couple in mind, but I'm not going to single them out because I'll get ridiculed for it. But... Um, uh, there, there are genuinely people I, of, of every rank that I could cite that, that have inspired me from private soldiers all the way up to, um, to some of our very senior leaders. We're lucky as an organisation to have so many. Very diplomatic of you, Colonel. <laughs> <laughs> Most inspirational leader from history and why? I, I'm going to pitch for two and I'm going to come to the modern day. Uh, first of all, HOH, the Prince of Wales. Um, I've seen some of his work personally. I think is an exemplar of servant leadership, seven almost seven decades of service to this country, probably topped only by his mother, the Queen, but I think he's an inspiring figure. Um, and someone you know, who may not have always got things right, as we, all, as we always have, and people have got their opinions and, and, and views. We all make mistakes, but I think um, he's, he's a wonderful example of, uh, of humility and servant leadership. And the other, I would say, is David Attenborough for um, the passion, the dedication, and the leadership he's shown. Uh, particularly of late in changing perceptions and the narrative on climate change. I think he's an inspiring figure. Most enjoyable leadership position you've ever held? Another horrible question. 
Uh, I toyed between three positions, OC machine guns, company commander, uh, or commanding officer. And I'd have to cite company commander, uh, task force commander in Afghanistan, 2013. I very mistakenly said to my wife when I came back, that was the best six months of my life. <laughs> uh, she nearly hit me and said, what about our wedding day and the birth of our children? And of course, apart from those, Farrell and George, six months. So I, I think by a, by a, a, um, a hair's breadth, I'd say, uh, company commander. Uh, most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? The importance of moral courage as a day-to-day dilemma battle. With hindsight, what would you tell a young Langley Sharp on day one at Sandhurst about leadership? Look after your people and they will look after you. Together you'll achieve great things. And what is the Army's biggest leadership challenge in the future? Um, I, I've alluded to already, I think it's the, the pace, but also the complexity of change in the operating environment and the ability of our leaders and us as followers, of which we all are, to navigate successfully through that. Colonel, thank you very much for your time today uh, to talk to us about the book, uh, the upcoming launch of the book, uh, The Habit of Excellence, The Way British Army Leadership Works. And Miss Nicol, always a pleasure speaking to you. And um, uh, thank you very much for all your, all your hard work, but also what you represent as a senior soldier here in the Centre of Army Leadership. Um, you, did a, you did a phenomenal voice, but you're also the voice of a, a phenomenal generation in our, in our junior and senior NCOs and our private soldiers. So, sincere thanks. Thank you. I really hope you've enjoyed today's podcast with Colonel Sharp, giving us a greater insight and understanding in his thoughts on the uniqueness of British Army leadership, how it's evolved throughout the course of our rich history, continuously adapting in recognition of the changing nature of our successive generations. We spoke about the reasons for writing a book and its intended effect, to change people's perception of how British Army leadership has evolved, in particular over the last 20 years, from what is perceived to be a very transactional, the traditional Sergeant Major shouting on square, to a more transformational, people-orientated form of leadership. This is something I have witnessed over the course of my 20 years service, much to the benefit of our organisation, making it more agile and adaptable to the changing nature of warfare. We also touched on how this book provides an element of self-reflection, taking stock not only of our successes, but also our failures, encouraging debate and discussion to prevent an environment where failures become systemic problems. As set out in the book, evidenced in this quote, the army has much to teach about leadership, but also plenty to learn. This book is part of the ongoing process of knowledge exchange and reflection. What's important to note is that this approach doesn't just apply to our generals and CEOs within businesses. They are just as applicable to our most junior commanders and those interns and apprentices who are about to commence their own leadership journeys. Throughout this podcast, the importance of our culture and ethos has remained a constant theme, marking how the relationship between our soldiers and officers has evolved during our history. The regimental and battalion system plays such an important role in reinforcing this collective identity, adding to the unique, rich and diverse tapestry of British Army leadership. This is highlighted in a book where it states that the power of Army leadership lies not just in its fundamental tenets, but in the contrasting and complementary ways they are put into action by soldiers and officers of all different ages, ranks and levels of experience. What can be taken from that quote is that it's this symbiotic relationship between our soldiers and officers that leads to mission success, 
based on trust and an inherent understanding of knowing when to lead and when to follow. The title, The Habit of Excellence, Why British Army Leadership Works, sums up the continuous learning process that our leaders experience from complex allied partnered operations to the everyday tasks conducted within barracks. And I'll end this summary with a quote from the book that has particularly resonated with me, reflecting the unique nature of leadership within the British Army. Leadership is not just about the heroic exception or the one-off action, but the habitual practice of doing what is right, difficult and necessary every single day to build a team, look after the people in it and work towards the next objective. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. That would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, And of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.